Hi, this is Pastor Matt, and I want to welcome you to our Blue Oaks Church podcast. At the end of this episode, feel free to download our Blue Oaks Church app where you'll be able to access resources, events, and ways to get connected at Blue Oaks and in the community. The app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around Blue Oaks. Most importantly, though, I just hope that you enjoy this episode and it inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. We're Greg and Lynn McDonald, and uh, we're from actually from Michigan. We we're high school sweethearts, got married right out of uh, high school. Lynn was 18, I was 20, and that's a long time ago. It was 37 years ago. I got pregnant, and we had our daughter. And then a couple years later after that, we had our son. And so I always dreamed of having a, a family. I wanted, I wanted a boy, a girl, the white picket fence, the dog. I wanted the whole kit and caboodle. I uh, met with a, a good friend of mine who's a pastor every Friday for lunch, kind of an accountability relationship. And he had told me uh, he was brokenhearted. He had just found out that his son was accessing uh, uh, pornography on the family computer. And I remember going home and thinking, boy, I, I gotta check out our computer. <laughs> and uh, sure enough, our son was accessing porn on the computer as well, except it was gay porn. We had dinner with our son and I had shared with him what I had uncovered. His immediate response was, I've always dreaded this day. He was, you know, crushed with, I don't know if it was embarrassment, it was very difficult for him, it was difficult for us. And every day you'd wake up and that's if you could sleep. And when you woke up, you felt like you're living this horrible dream. And then all of a sudden, the society I lived in took on a whole different look. Now I heard all these gay jokes being told at lunch, you know, and I, I, I saw TV differently, you know. And um, it was just, it was very um, almost surreal. To, to go through those days. There were a lot of questions that, that came to mind, questioning myself as a mother, mm. questioning my husband as a father. Are we gonna lose our friends? Are we gonna be able to attend the same church that we've been attending? I was frightened, I was frightened that if I was gonna, if I chose to love my, my son, does that mean that I'm gonna have to abandon God because of just how I was raised very conservatively and how verses of the Bible were were taught to me. I was more concerned about myself than I was even my child. Early on, our direction to Greg and our first conversation was, though we'll never stop loving you, like we need to get you fixed. So starting with ourselves, the messages that we were enforcing were pretty negative for the relationship. So when Greg went off to school, um, it actually uh, uh, took the tension way down. We continued to stay really close to Greg, even when he was in New York or Chicago. You know, we'd, we'd uh, we travel frequently to go see him, um, made it a point to uh, not only hang out with him, but with his friends. I actually think it was those times where the relationship really started to uh, take hold again. You know, we, we, we became friends with literally dozens of gay folks around now they're around the country because they've grown up and they've got jobs and they're all over the place. But uh, I would routinely ask a lot of the same questions, you know, it's like, uh, when did you decide to be gay? <laughs> um, and I, I've never had anybody explain, oh, well, that was on such and such a date. They, they all say, are you crazy? Like, who would ever pick this lifestyle? 
and asking them, you know, what, what are the greatest hurts? And always, always, it's either family members, you know, a mom saying, get out of my house, I never want to see you again. Um, or in most cases, it's the church, which is a huge ache for us, you know, because we're concerned about their souls and here they've been, you know, pushed away. We, I think we reached a point with our relationship with Greg where we felt comfortable enough and confident enough where I was totally fine strapping a bullseye on my chest and saying, have at it. And so I think that was a turning point for me. That was a turning point that, okay, it's not the life that I wanted and, you know, when I first got married, but that God was in it and that God was orchestrating this and it was gonna be okay. You know, today we're not, we're not interested in trying to change people. We're just interested in trying to love them. And uh, early on, that wasn't necessarily the case. Mm -hmm. I'd say today we're, we're really attempting to be focused on, on loving the people God puts in our path. So whether it's, you know, um, a gay man in Chicago who's uh, being prepped for back surgery, had been kicked out of his house, uh, and he calls us and says, um, would you pray with me? If you don't have a relationship, you don't have to worry about having those, those opportunities. If you have a relationship, then you have these incredible opportunities to speak truth into people's life. It's a lot freer for us. And again, as life happens, we find that we become sure footing for somebody who's in the midst of a trial. You know, I was thinking this week, uh, what is it about a story like that that just moves me? Like, what is it about that story that just goes way down deep into my soul? And I think it's because when I hear a story like that, I'm reminded about the incalculable worth of a single human being. When I watch that, I'm reminded of how invaluable a single human being is, and I'm reminded that a person like Greg is living a very real life with pressures and anxieties and hopes and dreams, and I'm reminded that every person on this earth is living a very real life. Like we may not believe all the same stuff, but we're all struggling with the same temptations and fears and insecurities and doubts. Now to begin today, I want to acknowledge that there are gay Christians at Blue Oaks today probably who are wondering is this the Sunday when you're going to let us have it? Like, is this the Sunday when you teach from Leviticus and Romans 1 and tell us we're not welcome here? Well, I want you to know up front, that's not going to happen. If you're gay, you are welcome at Blue Oaks. I want this church to be the safest place in the world to talk about anything, including same-sex attraction. And as I've thought about this and as I've prayed about this for the last couple of months, here's how I would like us to approach talking about this issue. Uh, the premise of the book Torn, uh, which is a great book. I highly recommend this book. If you haven't read anything on this issue, uh, I recommend you read it. It's Torn by Justin Lee. The premise of this book is this issue is tearing apart the church, not externally, but internally, because the battle lines have been drawn. There are two sides of the issue. One is shouting more truth. One is shouting more love. And let me explain why I believe this issue is tearing apart the church and what I believe we need to do differently. Uh, most people on both sides of the issue ask the same question. Do you believe being gay is sin? Do you believe married gay people are violating God's standard or design? 
These are close-ended questions. Uh, close-ended questions anticipate a short, opinionated, close-ended answer. Close-ended questions are made to be answered with a yes or a no. Uh, John Richardson, a professor of information studies at UCLA, says, close-ended questions discourage disclosure. They discourage deep communication conversation. Usually people who ask these questions have already answered the question for themselves and are seeking to figure out where the other person fits into their own preconceived ideas, either for or against. Even the most well-intentioned people routinely ask closed-ended questions, opinion-based questions, in an attempt to grasp who you are, what you believe, and which side of the issue you should be placed on. And the yes or no responses to those questions quickly trigger a predetermined set of thoughts and beliefs already in place for a yes answer, as well as a different set of predetermined thoughts and beliefs already in place for a no answer. I mean, just think about how absurd that is. A one-word answer to the most divisive topic in the church today is universally accepted as the normal way to handle the issue of same-sex attraction. And I believe this is what continues to build walls between gay people and the church. Closed-ended question creates separation in an us-versus-them mindset rather than giving an opportunity for productive bridge-building. So the first thing I want to encourage all of us to do as we approach conversations on this issue, whether you're talking to a person in the church or outside the church, gay or straight, is try not to ask closed-ended questions. And if you're asked a closed-ended question, try not to answer a closed-ended question with a closed-ended answer. This is something Jesus modeled throughout the Gospels. Uh, one conversation Jesus had with the religious leaders of that day uh, as they, they tried to trap him about paying taxes to Caesar, and knowing the simplistic answer to their question, Jesus didn't respond with a yes or no answer, but rather he elevated the conversation by asking his own question. Jesus understood their intentions. He knew they were trying to trap him, realizing that one-word answers would only feed into the growing disconnect between his followers and the religious system of that day, Jesus took another approach. And I'm simply asking us to take a similar approach as you're having conversations with people, especially people from the LGBTQ community. Consider how Jesus would handle the conversation about same-sex attraction in our day. I believe Jesus would elevate the greatest command that we are to love people, even those some of you don't like and are of purposely separating yourself from. Jesus would reach out and show kindness to gay people. And I don't know how else to say this, but if we can't love gay people as we love ourselves, we are disobeying Jesus' command, which I would go so far as to say is the worst sin of all. If the greatest commandment is to love our neighbor as ourselves, then the greatest sin is the refusal to obey the greatest commandment. Let me just put it more plainly. If you don't love gay people because you believe they're sinning, your sin, not loving, is worse than what you think their sin is because you're violating the greatest commandment of Jesus. And I would be more concerned about that if I were you. We sometimes ask the question, what would Jesus do? 
I think this is a great question when it comes to how we treat gay people because I believe Jesus would reach out and he would love gay people. He would treat them with dignity and respect. And by the way, the way to build bridges with gay people is not to debate on what the Bible says about same-sex attraction. I mean, that's not going to build bridges. I don't do that with straight people who are divorced and remarried. I'm not going to build bridges by telling them everything the writers of Scripture say about divorce and remarriage. We need to provide a place where gay couples and their children can be welcomed and they can take their next step in their spiritual journey, whatever that is. And if we're going to build bridges, we need to learn to listen and we need to validate their stories A friend of mine wrote a book on homosexuality in the church, and he interviewed people in the LGBTQ community all over the world, and the last question he asked in the interview was, what advice would you give someone when they encounter a young person who's dealing with same-sex attraction? The overwhelming immediate response was listen. Listening is a great gesture of love and acceptance, especially for young people. A lot of young people, especially those in the church, are fearful of rejection, and oftentimes they just remain silent. Uh, They need someone to listen to them, but they remain silent. And in our desire to help or to fix the situation, we often get distracted from listening. We want to offer advice and solutions so quickly that we fail to listen. It's critical that we become quick to listen and slow to speak. We need to bring an end to this awful situation that has played out all too many times in the history of the church in America, where a kid grows up in the church, he or she realizes they're different early in childhood, they go through puberty and experience a same-sex attraction, they believe something's wrong with them, and so they repress those emotions, they don't talk about them, especially in the church, for fear that they're going to be rejected, and then when they get the courage to finally talk about it, they feel like they no longer belong or they feel unwelcome. And they finally feel like they need to leave the church if they're going to consider themselves gay. We can figure this out. They don't have to leave. When I I lived in Chicago, I attended a church where the motto was, people matter to God. I mean, it's just about the simplest motto ever. People matter to God. But I would say this whole deal really is that simple. People matter to God. And we need to hear stories that remind us that's really true. In the time that we have left today, I want to talk about how deeply Jesus believed people mattered to God, how deep that went. And I I want you to know how how deep this ran for him. He believed this so strongly, this idea that people mattered to God, that it got him into a lot of trouble. And and then what I want to talk about is uh, uh, what this means for you and me, and then I want to talk about what this means for our gay friends and neighbors and coworkers um, and family members. Uh, one day in Jesus' ministry, he kind of dropped a bomb. Uh, early in his ministry, he had been teaching in Galilee, which is Jewish territory. Uh, his disciples were with him, and things were going quite well. Uh, Mark 4.1 says, The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it on a lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. So he's teaching all these people at the shore. And then Mark 4.35, that day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Now that's the bomb. The other side of the lake was actually a technical term in Jesus' day. 
uh, he wasn't just talking about geography. What Jesus was saying was, let's go from the region of Galilee across the Sea of Galilee into the Decapolis region. Decapolis was the word for 10 cities, and it was considered enemy territory. There was a Jewish tradition in Jesus' day in the Old Testament in Joshua 3.10. He says, God will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites. So these were known as the seven nations of Canaan. In Acts 13.19, Paul says, God overthrew seven nations of Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. And rabbinic rabbinic tradition in Jesus' day said that the capitalist is where the seven nations of Canaan settled down. It was filled with non-Jewish temples, ruins of which are still being excavated today. The Decapolis was the center for Roman power. Do you know what animal uh, in Israel was regarded as the most unclean animal? It was the pig. Well, the other side, on the other side, pigs were worshipped. And in the Decapolis, where uh, there was a legion of soldiers, uh, 6,000 Roman soldiers, They were stationed on the other side. And the symbol of that legion was the head of a pig. The Jews regarded the other side as the place where God was absent. They considered it dark and evil. And for a long time, the church has considered the LGBTQ community a place where God is absent, a place of darkness and evil. So the parallel I'm making here is not a stretch. No Jewish person would go to the other side, especially not a rabbi. I think it's safe to say that a lot of Christians feel about the LGBTQ community the way Jesus' followers felt about Decapolis. And then one day, the disciples find their rabbi, Jesus, just casually say, hey guys, let's go over to the other side. What's he doing? Doesn't he know the kingdom is supposed to come for Israel? It's almost like he doesn't know that it's the other side. It's almost like he thinks it's his side. It's almost like he thinks every side belongs to him. It's almost like he thinks all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through him, even the seven nations of Canaan. Well, we read in Mark 5 that Jesus and his disciples go over and land in the Decapolis area. Now, Jesus had been drawing big crowds on the Jewish side in Galilee because he was healing the blind. He was healing the lame and the lepers and those who were demon-possessed and uh, you know, all kinds of sick people. And when they go over to the Decapolis, there's no one there to meet him. There's one possessed uh, man possessed by an evil spirit. He's the only one. So like, that's the reception committee. And it's no surprise because this is the other side. Like No one goes to the other side. And this one man who shows up is so desperate that the text says that no one could subdue him. They would try to chain him, but it did no good. He was wild. He lived among the tombs. He cut himself with rocks. He would cry out in torment. And when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want from me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. And then Jesus asked him, What is your name? Anyone remember his response? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. Now, Legion is a loaded word. This story is full of loaded words and images. Uh, There's a legion of foreign soldiers who live there because it's the other side. It's a reminder of all the powers that Jesus is up against. The demons that possess this man are afraid of Jesus, and they ask to be sent, sent into a group of animals. 
into pigs. There's a herd of 2,000 pigs, and they rush down a steep bank into a lake, and they drown. And this would read very differently to an Israelite in, in Jesus' day than it does to us. Uh, we kind of think of pigs as a kind of cute little animal like Wilbur from uh, Charlotte's Web. And so this seems kind of sad to us. Well, back in Jesus' day, a pig's head was a symbol of the Roman legion, Roman power. And so this would read in the first century to an Israelite as a battle between the forces of darkness and light. And it's no contest. The pigs lose. And the people's response is very fascinating. Look at Mark 5. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. You better believe they did. I mean, imagine being a pig herder and you come home and there are no pigs. And your, 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 your boss asks you where the pigs are and all you have to tell them is they committed mass suicide. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. It's a very interesting response. They don't respond by saying, wow, this is a man with power. This is great. They don't think, I have a sick mom. I have a tormented child. I have a troubled friend. Like this man, could, he could heal them. He could help them. They begged this man, Jesus, to go away. He has power, but he's from the other side. Someone from the other side could hurt us. Someone from the other side could have an agenda. Someone from the other side is going to have an attitude of superiority or judgmentalism, or distance. They're afraid of people from the other side. The people beg him to go away, and so Jesus does. Mark 5.18 is so interesting. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. And you, you've got to picture this scene in your mind. The man prostrates himself before Jesus. I've been living here in this situation all my life, and it's destroyed me. Like, let me leave here. I just want to be with you. I'll leave everything. I'll leave anyone, everyone I know, everything I have. I just want to follow you. And he doesn't just make this request. He begs. He cries. He's desperate. And Jesus says, no. Jesus, who up until now has been going around on his side proclaiming, now the kingdom of God has become present in this earth, in me, in my body, in my teaching. The kingdom of God is now available, and you could just walk right on into it. Jesus says to this man, don't follow me. Stay here. Go tell your story. Imagine that man's feeling when the boat rows away, and he's not on it. But he says to himself, I'll do what he said. He saved my life. If he asked me to tell other people about him, that's exactly what I'll do. In Matthew 5, 20, so the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. Now, we'll come back to this. Now, Jesus wants to make sure his disciples get it, because sometimes the followers of Jesus have a difficult time understanding how much he loves all people, including people on the other side, and that to him, it's like they all belong to him. They have a hard time getting that. They have a tendency to want to kind of hang out on their side and think that their side is right. It's kind of a funny thing, isn't it? Another time Jesus is teaching, again, this is on the other side. We read about this in Mark 8. Let's just walk through the details of the story. A crowd of 4,000 people gather. Jesus says to his disciples in Mark 8 too, 
I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. Okay, so this is Mark 8. I just want to contrast here for a moment. Uh, If you look back at Mark 6, there's another account of a miraculous feeding where Jesus feeds 5,000 people. In Mark 6, it happens to be on the Israel side. And we're told that Mark 6, the disciples come to Jesus on the very first day. In Mark 6, it's the disciples who initiate concern for the crowd. They tell Jesus the people need something to eat. And so Jesus miraculously feeds them. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 baskets full of broken pieces of bread and fish. Now, when an Israelite heard the number 12, they would inevitably think of one thing, the 12 tribes of Israel. I mean, that's a sacred number to an Israelite. That's a picture of the people of God, of God's community. How many disciples were there? Twelve. Jesus is sending a message. When he chose 12 disciples, that's a very courageous move on Jesus' part. It's a real gutsy thing. He's deliberately telling people symbolically and in a way that everyone would understand that now the true community of Israel is being restored, is being assembled by him. It's no accident there were 12 disciples, and it's no accident there were 12 baskets. People would immediately have this association that God is providing for his people. God has not forgotten his people. God cares about his people. Okay, so that's Mark 6. Back to Mark 8. Jesus is teaching now on the other side, and there's a huge crowd of 4,000 people gathered together, and Jesus teaches one day, and the disciples don't say a thing. Jesus teaches two days, and the disciples don't say a thing. Third day, the disciples still don't say anything about feeding the crowd. Why? Because it's the other side. Let them feed themselves. But Jesus has compassion, and he miraculously feeds the people on the other side, just like he miraculously fed Israel. And he's, he, he sends some disciples around for leftovers. Now get this. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. This time it's not 12, but it's seven basketfuls of food left over. And there's a reason for this. How many nations of Canaan were there that the Jews believed lived in the Decapolis area? Seven. How many baskets full of food? Seven. Jesus is saying, you know, good news is coming for the 12 tribes of Israel. I haven't forgotten them. Like, they're mine. I want to feed them. And good news is coming to the seven nations of Canaan. I haven't forgotten them either. They're mine too. I'm going to feed them too. Twelve tribes, seven nations. It doesn't matter to me. I love them all. You see, the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ is good news for everyone, even people on the other side. One more detail to the story. When Jesus goes over to the other side for the first time, uh, just one guy meets him. And when the people hear what goes on, they leave and they beg Jesus to leave. On a second trip, when Jesus comes back to the region of the Decapolis, we read in uh, Matthew 15, great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and laid them at his feet, and he healed them. The people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking, the blind sing, and they praised the God of Israel. The other side praises the God of Israel. The first time Jesus went to the other side, no one was home except one demon-possessed man. 
and everyone begged him to leave. The second time he comes, he has one of the most dramatic responses to his arrival in all of the New Testament. What happened? One man told his story. That's what happened. One man traveled from one town to another, from one neighborhood to another, and said, let me tell you about this man Jesus and what he did for me. And it changed whole cities. Interesting thing, isn't it? There's a way that that man could reach people on the other side that no one, not Jesus' disciples, not even Jesus himself, could reach. One day our rabbi said, good news is coming to the other side, and the reality is, they're my side too. They just don't know it yet. Because my followers have kind of gotten in the way, so they can't see it. So you, demon boy, like you're going to be used to reach them. Imagine when they returned and there were these vast crowds and then Jesus sees this man who had been tormented by demons and set free and Jesus says to him, you know, the last time I came here, they begged me to leave and now they can't get enough of me. Like now the, the kingdom is wide open to them and it's because of you. You see, here's the thing. Jesus loves the other side. And what a different world we would live in if the church could really understand that, that it's all his side. He hasn't divided it up the way the church has in the past, our side, their side, the right side, the wrong side. It's just all his side. But then he has the oddest strategy for how he plans on infiltrating and reaching the other side. And that brings us to the church, to you and me. The last thing Jesus does before he leaves, he gathers his friends together and he says, okay, now everything I know, everything I've been teaching you about the kingdom, it's all handed over to you. And here's the strategy. I'm sending you to the other side. I'm leaving now. I've been teaching you and you've been watching me do all these things. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and you shall receive power and you'll be my witnesses to Jerusalem, to Judea, and to Samaria, and you're going to be scattered all over the earth. And you're going to go over to the other side. And it's going to be difficult sometimes, but don't be discouraged about it. This is my strategy. I'm sending you to the other side. They're going to be your responsibility now. Figure out how to love them. Figure out how to welcome them into my kingdom. Now, I imagine they were very, they were very disappointed uh, in that strategy uh, it's almost laughable, like just a couple hundred people, like what are the odds? I mean, you think about it. If you're like a Martian kind of looking down at the world in the first century in about the year 35 AD, like who do you think would be more likely to survive, like Christianity or the Roman Empire? I mean, you would not bet on a ragtag group of a couple hundred people claiming that an obscure carpenter had risen from the grave. And yet his movement was so successful that today we give our children names like Peter and Paul and Mary and we name our dogs Caesar and Nero. <laughs> How did that happen? Was it because they got better at religious arguing than everyone else? Was it because they had so many financial resources and fabulous buildings and more stuff than anyone else? No, it happened for one reason, because the presence and the way of Jesus was so strongly in their midst that they actually became good news to the other side. The world had simply, as a matter of historical record, never seen anything like this. 
And of course, this is the vision around which this church was started. Anytime we do something to try to reach more people in this community, I want you to know it's because Jesus compels us to become good news to the other side. I'll give you a few examples of how this vision worked in the early history of the church. Uh, in the Roman Empire, people in another socioeconomic class lived on the other side uh, because it was extremely uh, status and class-oriented as a society. Um, Roman culture was strictly hierarchical. Uh, people were divided into classes. And you often showed what your status was because life just kind of ran that way. Uh, your clothes showed your status. I know it's hard to believe human society was once so superficial that clothes were used to declare status, but that's just the way it was. If you went to a formal meal, the highest class, which is called the equestrian class, they were served first, and they were served the best. And then came the decurion class, and then the citizens, and then the freed people, and then if there was anything left over, it would go to the slaves. That's just the way life was. Like, no one challenged it. But then there was this new odd community that came to be called the church. And they thought to themselves, you know, when Jesus was here, he didn't do that. They remembered that Jesus said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for all. Imagine you're a slave and someone invites you and you come to this strange meeting of this group of followers in the church and there's a meal being served and you come in and they bring you to a table and you're a slave and you sit and a higher class person kneels down to serve you food. Do you have any idea? like how countercultural that would be. And you're just weeping because you're a slave and you've never had anyone serve you your whole life long. And the higher class person starts to weep because he's never before known the, the joy of shared humanity. You see, what has happened is Jesus has gone to the other side and so now the church goes to the other side. And in the church, there is no other side. Another example in the ancient world, was it better to be born a boy or a girl? In the ancient world, being born a girl was not a lucky thing. One historian writes, the abandonment of unwanted female infants was legal, morally accepted, and widely practiced by all social classes in the Greco-Roman world. But then there's this strange thing called the church, and they remembered that Jesus treated women with honor, and he even taught them and he received them into his little community, and he valued them, and he included them, and they remembered that all life was sacred and that little girls, as well as little boys, should be prized. You know, under Caesar Augustus in Rome, uh, widows were forced to remarry, or they were actually fined for outliving their husbands. They had to pay taxes to the Roman government if they lived longer than their husbands. But in the church, Care for widows was one of the marks of true followers of Christ. One of Jesus' followers, Paul, he wrote to the church in Galatia, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male or female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. Thomas Cahill says Jesus is the first person in the history of world literature to argue that all human beings are equal. And it wasn't just an idea. Early Christians lived it. 
And, it's, and is it any wonder that women flocked to the church? And they will flock to the church still when they are treated the way that Jesus treated them. One more example. Two times in the early history of the church, in 165 AD and in 251 AD, there were epidemics, that may have been smallpox, that killed between a fourth and a third of the population of the empire. And one Roman historian writes that the population in general pushed sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them in the roads before they were dead. They treated unburied corpses as dirt, hoping to avert disease. But then, in this strange community called the church, people thought, you know, when Jesus was alive, he cared for the sick. He would touch lepers when no one else would, and he would heal even if it got him in trouble. And now we're his body. And so they actually did what Jesus did. They took people in. They cared for the sick and the dying, even at the cost of their own lives. And these epidemics and the responses of the church played a huge role in the enormous spread of the early church, from a few hundred people to a point where about three and a half centuries after Jesus, over 50% of the Roman Empire named the name of Jesus. And now it's our turn. I just want to say a bit about what this means for you and me. Tim Keller is a pastor in Manhattan. He was teaching on Proverbs 11.10, where the writer says, when the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. There's a certain group of people who, when they rise to the top of their field, when they make it, people around them don't grumble and complain about it. These people have such character that people around them say, this is going to be good news for everyone, for the whole company, for the whole city. In the Old Testament, these people were called the righteous. This is what Keller writes. I love his definition. The righteous are those who are willing to disadvantage themselves in order to advantage the community. The righteous are those who are willing to disadvantage themselves in order to advantage the community. Which means I've got to ask this question, am I the kind of person to whom someone in my neighborhood would say, you know, I don't necessarily believe everything he believes, but I shudder to think what would happen if our, in our neighborhood if he was not around. You know, she adds so much value. She adds so much compassion and so much joy to our workplace. I may not agree with her faith, but I know we would be a poor office if she wasn't here. You know, I don't think, I don't like the judgmental Christianity that he's a part of, but the way he lives his life, caring for others and being open to those who are not of his faith, makes me wonder. That's the righteous. Those are the people about whom Jesus says they're the light of the world. They're the salt of the earth. When you have someone in a neighborhood who becomes a follower of Jesus, the idea is that he or she begins to do what Jesus says and becomes more generous and more compassionate and more friendly, and it becomes good for the neighborhood. The weapons of Jesus' kingdom are rakes and brooms and visits and listening ears and open hands and generous hearts and those who are willing to do whatever it takes to make room for more people to enter into his community. And Jesus' idea is that when someone becomes one of his followers, it's good news for the neighbors, even the Hindu neighbors, even the Muslim neighbors, even the atheist neighbors, even the gay neighbors, and it's the same at the office, and it's the same at school. Because if the gospel isn't good news for everybody, it isn't good news for anybody. That was Jesus' idea. 
The mission of the church is not to make sure that we're all doing okay on the inside while everyone in the world goes to hell on the outside. You know, we live in a world where it's so easy, even for us who ought to know better, to think that it's all about our side and not think about the other side. And you hear this stuff. You hear it sometimes on Christian radio or in magazines or in churches, our side and their side. And I just want to scream, don't you know Jesus is the one who said the whole thing is his side? Like there is no side. And so here's what I want you to consider this week. And I'm making the parallel that the other side is the LGBTQ community. Would you love the other side? Will you say, Jesus, I will go to the other side? I'm going to need your help to go to the other side, but I'm going to go to the other side. Will you help me? Will you give me the courage to invite the other side into this community that you love so much? When people start getting the good news of Jesus right, it's good news for the other side. It's good news for everyone. All right, let me pray as the band comes to lead us in a closing song. God, we're so thankful for the call that you've put on us to love all people, regardless of their age or race or gender or political position or sexual orientation. They're all your side. And would you help us to be a welcoming church to gay people and shatter this stereotype in our society so that gay people can come to this church and take their next step in their spiritual journey, whatever that is. And God, may you be glorified as we seek to be a church after your own heart. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. We hope you found something in this week's message to take away and apply to your life this week. Uh, If you live in the Bay Area, we would love to have you join us for one of our weekend services. We meet on Sunday mornings at 845, 10, and 1115. Uh, For directions or information about what we have for you or your family, your students, you can go to blueoaks.church or download the app today.